was uh, delivering a sermon, the late Professor David Gooding uh, would sometimes joke that he always liked to say the words, and finally, at least three times. (laughs) And final thoughts is indeed the title of this morning's talk as we bring our study of the letter of James to its close. And we're going to be dealing with um, all of James chapter 5. I'm going to divide the chapter up into three sections. And for each section, I'm going to draw out one key lesson for ourselves. And rather than read the entire text in one go... Um, we'll, we'll read it in its three parts. There's something going, something funny going on with my Bible. The words are getting smaller and smaller <laughs> for some reason, so I'm going to have to hold it, I think, closer to me. So we're going to begin with verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Happily, each of the three sections that we're going to be um, you know, dividing up the, the chapter into each uh, begins, or for my consideration, begins with the letter P. And possessions then is the first of those. What we have just read together is one of the severest denunciations that you will find anywhere in the New Testament. James certainly doesn't miss the wall with his shots. Many commentators remark that James here speaks in the manner of an Old Testament prophet as he lambasts rich oppressors. And the question is whether James is speaking to rich believers or to rich unbelievers. The answer, though disputed, is perhaps more likely to be unbelievers. For significantly, James omits from from this passage the term brothers, which is one of his favorite terms which recurs throughout the letters, the, the letter. Some object, what's the point of addressing wealthy oppressors in a letter to the church? But that objection falls if we appreciate both that James is seeking to discourage any envy of the rich on the part of believers and 
to comfort the oppressed with the knowledge that there is going to be a day of justice awaiting the oppressor. And what James does is to give really a fourfold indictment of the rich. First of all, in verses 2 to 3, hoarding. The wealthy have amassed so much grain, clothes, and precious metals that these have begun to, to decay and corrode. They have too much by way of possessions, more than they have use for. And it's difficult to read these verses without cross-referencing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Or indeed, Jesus' parable of the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12, whose produce had outgrown his barns. Such hoarding is wicked and will be used as evidence against the wealthy come the day of judgment. Then secondly, verse 4, exploitation. Contrary to the requirements of the Mosaic law, these wealthy landowners have cheated the daily farm laborers out of their wages, either by uh, paying them too little or not paying them on time. And of course, in an agrarian, in an agrarian economy, any delay in payment would mean that laborers' families would have to go without their daily rations. And then thirdly, we have verse 5, extravagance. And James uses two terms to describe the bloated lifestyle of the wealthy oppressor. First, luxury. They know nothing of hardship, but live a pampered existence. And I'm reminded of what was said of the rich man in the story that Jesus told about Lazarus. The rich man was said to have feasted sumptuously every day. And second, the second term is self-indulgence. And the idea here is of shameless debauchery. Like the cattle in the field, the rich don't appreciate that they are being fattened for the day of slaughter the day of judgment. And then fourthly, verse six, injustice. The wealthy are using their superior resources to buy judicial favors. Perhaps they're forcing the sale of smaller landownings at a knockdown price, or they are pursuing unpaid debts to the point of starvation and death. And of course, the island of Ireland knows about that from history. They show no mercy to those who are powerless to offer resistance. So what are we to learn from this? So here's our first lesson. <coughs> the importance of a balanced attitude to wealth. A balanced attitude to wealth. It would be very easy 
to having read these six verses in James chapter 5 to conclude that the Bible is in fact anti-wealth, but it's not. The Bible is against ill-gotten wealth and the misuse of wealth, but it is not anti-wealth per se. There is no justification for using the Bible in support of Marxist critiques of wealth, which sometimes um, is put forward. There are wealthy biblical figures who received God's commendation, not least the father of faith, Abraham, or indeed Job, who we'll encounter later on in the chapter, in this chapter. What God opposes is wealth being accumulated on the back of exploitation or wealth that is amassed and never distributed. Likewise, where wealth becomes our driving force or the source of our security, pushing God to the margins of our lives, we must say that this is wrong. But running a business for a decent profit or saving prudently for your and your family's future is not anti-biblical. It's all about balance, not trusting in your wealth at God's expense and not living a life of luxury which ignores the vast material needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ plus your fellow man who is the victim of natural disasters, crop failures, terrorism, or misgovernment. And we've been thinking about that um, this morning, for instance, with the dam bursting in Ukraine. You know, we have a responsibility to give of our wealth into that uh, and such situations as that. Okay, so we're into our second section of the chapter 5. And this is verses 7 to 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth, or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. So back with our letter P, and there's a bonus this section because I've actually got two P's. There's a double P, patience and perseverance, for James uses both terms. James exhorts his readers to be patient patient until the Lord's coming. Now let's leave the matter of the Lord's return for a moment. But the point is, 
that the knowledge that he will come back and institute a day of judgment should act as a spur to James's audience to keep going even in the face of oppression and hardship. They are to be like the farmer who had to wait for the autumn and spring rains before they could you know, harvest their crop. They're to be patient and stand firm. That latter term, stand firm, is the idea of establishing your heart on a goal. It's actually the very same term as is used in Luke 9 verse 51 of Jesus setting his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. James then points to the prophets in general and to the patriarch Job in particular as role models of those who have exhibited patience and perseverance in the midst of adversity. Men like Jeremiah, who was thrown into a cistern. Ezekiel, who suffered a painful bereavement. Daniel, who was deported and subsequently thrown to the lions. Hosea, who was the victim of adultery. Or Amos, who was falsely accused of conspiracy. All were faithful in performing their role of speaking in the name of the Lord. All persevered in the face of suffering and opposition. And then there was Job, righteous Job, who suffered to an extent beyond that of any man, Christ apart, losing his wealth, his health, his children, and verbally tortured by his four friends and yet who refused to curse God and was rewarded for his faithfulness by receiving back more than ever from a compassionate and merciful God. James's audience are exhorted to persevere. But as they do so, he warns them against sins of speech, a very familiar theme as we have seen in the letter of James. They're to avoid grumbling against their brethren, verse 9, or they risk inviting judgment upon themselves. And in verse 14, or verse 12, rather, we have what seems like a random admonition not to swear. And we must understand that James is not, you know, talking here about using four-letter words It's not swearing in the sense of uttering profanities. Not that we should be doing that, but that's not what James has in view here. James is talking about swearing an oath, something that Jesus forbade his followers from doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And we may well ask, well, why why, um, the prohibition on that? Well, because the Jews had introduced a hierarchy of oaths. Basically, if you swore by a substitute for God's name, heaven, Jerusalem, something like that, your oath wasn't then considered as binding. It's a bit like, you know, pagans, you know, cross your fingers when you're supposed to be telling the truth and then it's okay to lie. That's the idea. 
James will not countenance such a subterfuge. He wants Christians to be people of verbal integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be people of your word. I love what um, the Australian commentator John Dixon says on this. If we are not known for speaking words of truth, how can we claim to know the word of truth? And that takes us to our second lesson for this morning, which is the importance of a balanced attitude to the parousia. Parousia, I think that's the correct pronunciation. The parousia is the technical term given to the Lord's return, to Jesus' second advent. James makes a double reference to this event in verse 7 and then verse 9. And the fact that he describes this as near, as near, has led some liberal commentators to argue that James was mistaken. For of course, some two millennia later, Jesus still hasn't returned. But this is to confuse the meaning of near. The idea here is one of imminence. That is, Jesus' return could occur at any time. Not necessarily that he'll return tomorrow or next week or next year or next century. Only God knows the precise timetable. What we are exhorted to do is to live our lives in the expectation that Jesus could return today. Not that we are to have an unhealthy fascination with such a thing. Actually, at the time I was writing this talk, uh, which was a, a fair wee while ago, but um, there was an article that I came across just that day on the BBC website. And it was about how the Nigerian government had had to rescue children from some crackpot church in Ondo State in Nigeria. The children had been stopped from attending school because the leaders of the church had said that Jesus was going to return in April 22. And following a non-show, that was revised to September 22. And unless I'm missing something, that didn't happen either. Now, obviously, that is an extreme, but we must avoid the opposite danger of living our lives as if Jesus will never return or that he definitely is not going to return in my lifetime. Jesus is coming back and he expects us, his people, to be about his work, not to be completely consumed by the things of this passing and fallen world. And it's the expectation of his return and his return as judge that should give us the fortitude to keep going even in the midst of adversity and suffering and opposition to his message and opposition to the values of his kingdom. Third and final section then, verses 13 through to the end. Is any one of you in trouble? 
he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I've put this last section under the P, under the title of prayer, but I was actually very tempted to put it under the title of perplexity, for there are some very difficult and controversial verses here. And you'll be relieved to know that we're not going to get bogged down in controversy. I intend to keep it relatively straightforward. The main theme, as I say, is prayer. And remember, according to church tradition at least, James practiced what he preached because his knees were calloused from the amount of time that he spent in prayer on his knees. Um, If someone is in trouble, verse 13, he should pray. If someone is sick, he should invite the elders of the church to pray over him, verse 14. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, verse 16. Look at Elijah. And by the way, DV, that's what we're going to be doing in Castlereagh Fellowship from July onwards. We're going to be looking at the life of Elijah. Elijah's prayers affected the weather with no rain for three and a half years. He prayed again, and it rained for three and a half years. Now, whatever the complexities of these verses, one thing is absolutely unmistakable. James believed in the power of both personal and intercessory prayer. But the other thing I want to highlight is the emphasis upon the mutual life of believers. Christians live in community, and we have a responsibility to look out for each other's well-being. Yes, elders have a particular responsibility in this regard, but the duty of care and of mutual encouragement and even rebuke is not confined to that office. Hence, James speaks of confessing your sins to each other and praying for each other, verse 16. And the letter closes out with the exhortation given to all to seek to turn back those who have wandered from the truth. James would not approve if we allowed concern for privacy and other sensibilities to stop us from actively pursuing and challenging those who are giving evidence of straying from a faithful gospel lifestyle. And that takes us to our third and final lesson, which is the importance of a balanced attitude to 
healing. Yes, the vexed topic of healing. And all I'm going to do is to offer some tentative observations on our passage. Number one, we should not treat these verses as some sort of manual for divine healing. We must at least allow other biblical passages which address the topic of healing. We must, you know, allow for those as well in our conclusions, especially given that there's a lot of disagreement as to the exact meaning of what James was actually saying here. Secondly, there's no mandate here for special healing rallies or special healing services. This is just one ill person calling for his own church elders to visit him for purposes of intercessory prayer. Thirdly, while some commentators have tried to isolate the man's illness to a spiritual sickness rather than a physical illness, this does seem to be unnecessarily restrictive. Fourthly, we must never conclude that illness is a direct consequence of sin in a person's life. Note James's qualification in verse 15. If he has sinned. Five, note that the man's healing is not said to depend on the strength or otherwise of his own faith. It's actually the faith of the elders, not the ill man that here results in the man's restoration. To make someone's recovery from illness depend upon the strength of his faith is a most cruel form of bondage and will cause desperate damage in the event of someone not making the recovery that is prayed for. How cruel it is to tell someone on the receiving end of a terminal cancer diagnosis that if only she has enough faith, she'll be healed. Sixthly, whatever James means by the prayer offered in faith in verse 15, this must not be taken as a cast iron guarantee that physical healing will always be the outcome of our prayers. After all, even the apostle Paul He prayed for healing for himself and it didn't result. The apostles and their co-workers suffered from illnesses just like the rest of us. And basic common sense tells us that we're not always going to be healed. We know that in the end, everyone dies. So please do not assume that someone will be healed as a result of your prayers And don't be comforting them with some word of knowledge that you have received, telling them that their illness is not going to result in their death, but is going to redound to the glory of God as a result of a miraculous restitution. Do that and you're playing with families' emotional and spiritual well-being, never mind potentially doing great despite to the Uh, reputation and name of God. Seventhly, this is not a carte blanche to call the elders of the church. Sam Albury writes, don't expect the elders to arrive round with the prayers and grapes every time you develop a sneeze. 
Obviously, the case we're dealing with here is a very serious situation. And remember that the folks in James's day weren't blessed with the NHS. Mind you, I'm tempted to say that today you might get to see an elder quicker and you can secure a non-virtual appointment with your GP. But given that there are doctors here, I'm not going to say that. Eighthly, there's no special quality in the oil with which the man was anointed. Oil had more symbolic than medicinal value, even in James's day. Anointing with oil represented the man being set apart for God. It was not the application of a steroid cream. Neither was it a pagan ritual whereby the oil was believed to possess some magical curative power. And ninthly, there's absolutely no warrant here for the Roman Catholic practice of last rites or extreme unction. That is, anointing with oil performed by a priest to someone on their deathbed, supposedly removing any remnant of sin as preparation for the afterlife. Apart from the fact that no priest has the power to absolve sin, the goal of the man in James chapter 5, if I'm reading this correctly, is to recover, not to die. Anyway, my time has gone well and truly, and I think I will draw this to a halt. Otherwise, some of you might be tempted to see that my days are brought to a premature end. So we're going to close. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.